For me, this is a momentous occasion. We are in the presence of a woman who, in her own lifetime, through her work, has already helped to change the world. If we're not engulfed in global disaster and our planet survives for another hundred years, those of us who live into the future will be able to look back on this night and say, I was there. I saw Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza. I heard her speak. In the 1960s, when feminist thought was just emerging and feminism in the context of religion was but a glimmer in the darkness of unconscious and pervasive patriarchal thought, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza was there. Many historians of the past 50 years identify the birth of feminist religious thought with Mary Daly's act of protest when she walked out of Harvard Chapel in the late 1960s. If Mary Daly's act and writing sparked the movement, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza gave it a strong, scripturally based skeletal structure and flesh and brought it to life. How appropriate that she now teaches at Harvard Divinity School. Dr. Schusler Fiorenza was educated in Germany, where she earned a master's in divinity and a licentiate in theology from the University of Würzburg and a doctorate in theology from the University of Münster. She describes the focus of her teaching and research as questions of biblical and theological epistemology, hermeneutics, rhetoric, the politics of interpretation, issues of theological education, and radical equality and democracy. Just a few specialties. <laughs> Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza is a foundational thinker in Catholic Christian feminist thought. And as you may know, the Catholics have made truly the outstanding contribution to feminist theology. Her background in scripture, coupled with her brilliant, disciplined, systematic mind, enabled her to bring early feminist thought from a criticism of traditional theology to a systematic theological view. She is already thought of and will be remembered as one of the trinity of Catholic women who all but invented feminist theology. That's the phrase of Angela Bonavoglia. Her books and articles are too numerous to mention. The most famous, perhaps, is In Memory of Her, which solidified her influence as a foundational thinker in feminist theology, a significant New Testament scholar, and a revisionist in systematic theology in general. Her concept of the discipleship of equals has gained universal recognition and use among feminist theological thinkers and activists worldwide. Dr. Schusler Fiorenza taught for years at Notre Dame before she moved to Harvard Divinity. She is a partner in marriage to Harvard theology professor Francis Schusler Fiorenza 
and last but hardly least, the mother of a wonderful, talented, capable daughter. If you don't understand everything she says, take heart and comfort in simply being here, in being in the presence of someone who has made such a difference for women and men worldwide. It's my honor and privilege to introduce to you Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza. Thank you very much for your warm welcome. I also want to thank uh, Dr. Jane Weyer for her very uh, generous and kind introduction, and especially the Eugene Burke Lectureship Committee for inviting me to give this year's lecture, which is to provoke, according to their uh, literature, thought, facilitate, interchange, and stimulate scholarship. I'm also grateful to Mr. Richard Morrow for all the work he has done and all the emails he has sent in preparation of my visit. And last but not least, I want to thank all of you for coming here tonight and uh, reflecting with me on scripture and the rhetoric of empire. It is a great privilege to give this year's Burke Lectures on Religion and Society. In this lecture, I want to share with you some of the issues addressed in my new book, The Power of the Word, Scripture and the Rhetoric of Empire. Since the moral majority in the 1970s and the Christian, right in, uh, the Christian New Right in the 1980s and 1990s, have used biblical text and injunctions for legitimating the militaristic politics of the U.S. as a global superpower, the language of religion in general, and scripture in particular, has played a major role in public discourses. Hence, it is important that biblical scholars and readers assess the rhetorical power of the word, especially when it is claimed to be the authoritative, revealed, sacred word of Scripture, whose authority has been understood throughout the centuries in analogy to imperial power. Christian scriptures and interpretation, I argue, could and can rightly be used in the service of empire, colonialist expansion, and heterosexist uh, discrimination, because they have been formulated in the context of Roman imperial power and therefore are determined by this rhetorical, political, imperial context. They advocate and inculcate the ethics of empire, submission, violence, and exclusion, as well as use the language of empire for God and Christ. To explore the theological inscriptions of empire, I will first discuss the contemporary context of our readings of scripture, and secondly, explain my own analytic approach. Thirdly, I will explore the rhetorical power ascribed to scripture, 
and finally propose an understanding of scriptural interpretation that is helpful to deconstruct the inscriptions of empire and free us from their internalizations. First then, in recent years, New Testament, or as I would prefer, Christian Testament scholarship, has rediscovered or re-emphasized the Roman Empire and its impact on early Christian life and literature as an important field of study. However, such studies have often proceeded in an apologetic rather than in a critical fashion. Studies of the Gospels, the Pauline literature, or other Christian Testament writings in their attitude towards the Roman Empire have tended to argue that these were critical of Roman imperial power and resisted its structures of domination. However, such an argument uh, overlooks that even resistance literature will reinscribe the structures of domination which it seeks to defend against. For instance, writings like the Book of Revelation, which uses imperial language as anti-language, still reinscribes the ethos of empire. The Gospels also functions as apologetics of empire, insofar as they displace the responsibility for the executions of Jesus from the Roman uh, imperial uh, powers uh, to the Jews and thereby continue to engender Christian anti-Judaism. The Pauline literature, in turn, fosters imperial subordination insofar as it interprets the execution of Jesus as dying for our sin, which was brought into the world by a woman. In attempting to rescue early Christian scriptures as anti-imperial literature, such defensive arguments tend to overlook that the language of empire and its violence, which is encoded in Christian scriptures, has shaped Christian religious and cultural self-understandings throughout the centuries, and still does so today. Such language of uh, subordination and control is not just historical language. Rather, as sacred scripture, it is performative language that determines Christian identity and praxis. It does not need just to be understood but must be made conscious and critically deconstructed, since this language of empire encoded in Christian scriptures has two reference points, the Roman Empire as a context and social location of the Christian Testament on the one hand, and contemporary forms of empire on the other. In the past few years, a stream of books has appeared conceptualizing globalization in terms of empire. Some of these books discuss the rise and fall of the American empire. Others argue that China will be the next empire in the global market. Again, others elaborate the moral and economic price to be paid by being an empire. While the American people fervently believe that the U.S. is a democracy, historians argue that it has always been an empire. The present expansion of capitalist globalization is secured by the military-industrial complex and justified also in Christian religious terms.
as King Yombak observes. The emergence of the global empire provides a new global context of theology. This context is ecumenical and universal. No theological reflection can avoid this context. All faiths and religions are bound to deal with this context. There may be different starting points depending on the locus of the faith community, whether one is at the seat and center of the empire or at its periphery. One is not and never outside of empire. End of quote. This new world order spanning the globe lives by the principle, maximize financial returns and profits as much as possible, and everything will turn out fine. The predictable results of the neoliberal economic model are socially uh, unjust, politically destabilizing, culturally destructive, and ecologically unsustainable. Economic globalization has been created with a specific goal of giving primacy to corporate profits, installing and codifying such market values globally. It was designed to amalgamate and merge all economic activities around the world within a single model of global monoculture. Insofar as many of the functions of the nation state are taken over by multinational corporations, their globalizing economic, cultural, and political forces form a polycentric empire. The danger of this shift from nation state to international cooperation is that lobbyists of transnational corporations manipulate democratic governments and that the system of global capitalism is no longer held democratically accountable. However, such globalization also presents possibilities for a more radical democratization worldwide. It it, uh, narrows geographical distances between people, fosters their growing interdependence, makes possible the interconnectedness of all beings, and engenders the possibility of communication and solidaric uh, organization across national borders on the basis of human rights and justice for all. Thus, religious uh, communities and persons face a theoretical choice today. We can strengthen global global capitalist dehumanization, or we can support the growing interdependence of people. We can spiritually sustain the exploitation of capitalist globalization, or we can engage the possibilities of radical democratization for greater freedom, justice, and solidarity, engendered by the technological market forces of globalization. World religions can compel individuals and groups to support the forces of economic and cultural dehumanization, or they can envision and work for an inclusive spiritual ethos of global dimensions. They can either foster fundamentalism, exclusivism, and the exploitation of a totalitarian global monoculture, or they can advocate radical democratic spiritual values and visions that celebrate diversity, multiplicity, tolerance, equality, justice, and well-being for all. Such an ethical either-or choice does not reinscribe the dualisms created by structures of domination, 
but struggles to overcome and abolish them. It calls people to take sides in the global struggles for dom uh, domination, for greater justice, freedom, and well-being. Yet it must not be overlooked that the economic, sociological impact of globalization and its attendant exploitation and misery already has engendered the resurgence of the religious right and of global, cultural, and religious fundamentalisms, claiming the power to define the true nature and essence of religion. Right-wing, well-financed think tanks are supported by reactionary political and financial institutions that seek to defend global capitalism. Right-wing religious movements around the globe have insisted in the past decades on the figuration of emancipated women either as signifiers of Western decadence and of modern atheistic secularism, or they have presented masculine power as the expression of divine power. The interconnection between religious uh, anti-democratic arguments and the debate with regard to women's place and role is not accidental or of merely intra-religious significance. Christian religion and scriptures have been used uh, consistently for legitimating Western expansionism and military rule, as well as for inculcating the mentality of obedience and submission to the powers of empire. Just as the ideal of the Pax Romana was sustained by military power and religious legitimization, so also is the Pax Americana maintained through military force and Christian rhetoric. The Bible and biblical studies are clearly implicated since they are associated with Western colonialism. This is aptly expressed in the pithy saying ascribed to Bishop Tutu. When the missionaries arrived, they had the Bible, and we had the land. Now we have the Bible, and they have the land. <laughs> the form of biblical and religious legitimization most closely associated with colonialism has been monarchical Catholicism and Biblicist uh, Protestantism both of which are oriented toward the salvation of the soul and profess an individualistic theology which preaches personal submission to the authority of scripture or the authority of the Pope. In contrast, critical biblical studies at first glance seem not to be aligned especially with Western colonialism because they allegedly are driven by scientific rationality and objectivity. Yet anyone studying the history of biblical scholarship will recognize that biblical interpretation has been articulated for the most part not only by elite Western-educated clergymen, but also in the interest of imperial, cultural, and political power over. In recent years, postcolonial biblical studies have amply documented this function of positivist biblical scholarship in the interest of empire, whereas feminist studies have shown that the majority of those dehumanized by global imperialism are women and children dependent on women. 
In many respects, women are suffering not only from the globalization of market capitalism, but also from the sexual exploitation instigated by it. The systemic inequality, abuse, violence, discrimination, starvation, poverty, neglect, and denial of women's rights that afflict the lives of women around the globe are extensively documented. A glance at statistical data and women's situations around the world can easily document that women as a group are disadvantaged worldwide in and through the process of globalization. Women still earn only two-thirds of what men in similar situations earn. The majority of people living in poverty are women. Violence against women in gynocide, that is the killing of women, is in the increase. Sexual trafficking, various forms of forced labor, illiteracy, migration and refugee camps spell out globally women's increasing exploitation. Rose Wu sums up, uh, from Hong Kong sums up this situation, I quote her. The borderless societies that the global economy promotes continue to exploit women by selling them as wives, forcing them into prostitution or engaging them in other kinds of exploitative work, such as working in sweatshops or working as domestic labor. Women displaced from farms and uh, collapsed uh, domestic industries because of trade liberalization have been uh, focused, uh, forced to seek survival by migrating to foreign lands where they often suffer abuse and harsh treatment at the hands of their recruiters and employers. Many become victims of sex trafficking, end of quote. Women's struggles for survival and well-being must therefore remain at the heart of our discussion of global empire and its death-dealing violence. The question of empire is therefore an eminently feminist question and central to any discussion of globalization in scripture. Since according to fundamentalist voices, feminism equals godless humanism and Western decadence, and because of the long and deep implications of Christianity in Western imperial dominations, it is necessary to develop a Christian feminist theological analysis and practice of scripture interpretation in the context of contemporary capitalist market globalization. Since the expression feminist still evokes in many audiences a complex array of emotions, negative reactions, and prejudice, as well as a host of different understandings. And since the F word is still, or again, in most of the world, a dirty word, <coughs> I hasten to explain how I understand the F word feminist. <laughs> but before I do so, I want you to turn to your neighbor and don't ask me who your neighbor is, <laughs> and share your understanding of feminism and whether you are a feminist or not.
yes. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I guess I owe you my definition of feminism now. I have a definition of feminism which is a bumper sticker definition. A friend of mine gave it and it's in the back of uh, my car and every time I get gas people are discussing what it means. (laughs) Okay, it's um, expressed by a well-known bumper sticker which in tongue-in-cheek asserts feminism is the radical notion that women are people. (laughs) (laughs) This definition accentuates that feminism is a radical concept and at the same time ironically underscores that at the beginning of the 21st century, feminism should be a common sense notion. Women are not ladies, wives, handmaids, seductresses, or beasts of burden. But women are full decision-making citizens. This definition alludes to the democratic assertion, we the people, in positions feminism within radical democratic discourses, which argue for the right of all the people who are women. It evokes memories of struggles for equal citizenship and decision-making powers in society and religion. According to this political definition of feminism, men can advocate feminism just as women can be anti-feminist. Feminism is not just concerned about gender, but also about race, class, and imperialism. It is concerned about Kyriacher, that is, emperor, lord, master, father, elite male, determined power, relations. Consequently, feminist biblical theological inquiry focuses on the imperial power relations inscribed in scripture as the word of God. In order to lift into consciousness the linguistic violence of so-called generic male-centered language, I use the term women and not men in an inclusive way. (laughs) Um, Women includes men, she includes he, and female includes male. English is a wonderful language, you can do it in German. I suggest, therefore, whenever you hear me say women, you understand it in the generic sense. (laughs) Feminist studies of language have elaborated that Western curiocentric, that is, master, lord, father, male-centered language systems, understand language as both generic and gender-specific. Women always must think at least twice, if not more, and adjudicate whether or not we are meant or not by so-called generic terms, such as brothers, men, humans, Americans, or Catholics. To use women as an inclusive generic term invites men in the audience to learn, uh, like women, how to think twice. 
and to experience what it means not to be addressed explicitly. Since women always must arbitrate whether or not we are meant, I consider this good spiritual exercise for men to acquire the same sophistication and to learn how to engage in the same hermeneutical process of thinking twice and of asking whether they are meant when I speak of women. Since according to Wittgenstein, uh, the limits of our language are the limits of our world, such a change of language pattern is a very important step toward the realization of a new feminist consciousness. Because of the variegated forms of women's discrimination and variegated struggles, there are many divergent and even contradictory articulations of feminism. For instance, womanism, muharista, Latina, black, Asian, or Native American feminisms, so that it is appropriate to speak of feminism in the plural. Most of them agree that contemporary feminism is not only a political movement, that is akin to other emancipatory movements. It is also an intellectual and religious methodology, both for investigating and theorizing the experiences and structures of women's dehumanization and for articulating norms of well-being and visions of change. The diverse theoretical articulations of feminism, I suggest, come together in their critique of kuriashi, that is, the domination of the lord, emperor, slave master, father, elite mayor. They hold that gender, like race, class, and nation, is socially constructed rather than innate or ordained by God. Theologically, they understand women as the people of God and indict the death-dealing powers of exclusion and oppression as structural sin and life-destroying evil. Reclaiming the authority of women for shaping and determining biblical religions, feminist studies ask new questions and employ new ways of seeing in order to reconceptualize the act of religious identity formation as a moment in the global praxis for liberation. Such a transformation is brought about by social movements for justice and change, engendering a different self-understanding and vision of the world. Since the authority of the Bible as the word of God has been and still is used against such movements for change, it is necessary to investigate why scripture can be used in support of empire. If the power of scripture understood as the sacred word of God continues to be used in the interest of domination, then it is necessary to assess and to evaluate how its readings reproduce the power of empire uh, inscribed in scripture. To bring notions of scripture and empire together has an irritating, upsetting, and disturbing effect on our minds and draws Christian imagination and sensibilities. Where scripture is believed to be the authoritative, revealed, sacred word of God, empire evokes a notion of domination, violence, and subjugation. 
Insofar as it is claimed that scripture is the liberating word of a just and loving God, the rhetoric of scripture seems to be contradictory to and clashing with the rhetoric of empire that advocates domination and submission. A critical feminist liberationist approach to scripture and empire engages a double analysis, one that conceptualizes power as structural, pyramidal, or more precisely as curiatal relations of domination, and one that understands power horizontally as an ideological network of relations of domination. Both modes of imperial power the vertical and the horizontal, are at work in capitalist globalization. The curiatal, that is, the imperial power pyramid of domination, is structured by race, gender, sexuality, class, empire, age, and religion, which are intersecting systems of power over that have multiplicative effects of dehumanizing exploitation and othering subordinations. Hence, it is necessary to distinguish the sacred power of scripture from the power of empire that has shaped Christian scriptures. This is possible, I suggest, because power can be seen and exercised not only as power over, as power of domination and rule, as control and uh, command, as potestas, the power of empire. Power also can be understood as power for or as power to, as capacity, energy, and potential, as creative, energizing, enabling, and transformative power, as potentia, as creative activity and strength. Power can be wielded only by a few to dominate the many, or it can be seen as energizing everyone, as enriching creative possibility for community and justice. If power always has this dual connotation, then we must adjudicate in a process of evaluation what kind of power each scriptural text exposes, espouses and authorizes, since Christian scriptures share in the rhetoric of power over and in that of the power to. This observation compels us to raise the question as to whether a particular text of scripture espouses the power of empire, which is power over, demands submission, subordination, and subjection, or whether it exhibits creative, energizing, and enabling power to resist injustice and global exploitation. In light of these two definitions of power, scripture can be understood as power over in terms of the imperial command submission structure, or it can be seen as enabling and energizing power. The power of the word to exclude and to legitimate women's second-class citizenship and thereby to reinscribe the power over of empire is explicit, for instance, in the following Pauline injunction, which you are all familiar with. As in all the ecclesiae, the assemblies of the saints, the women should keep silence in the ecclesiae, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as even the law says. Or to quote First Peter 2, be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is the emperor as supreme 
or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong. Not all scriptural texts are so obvious in promoting imperial power relations, but all of them must be carefully analyzed and critically assessed as to what kind of power they advocate. What kind of values and mentality do the texts of scripture inculcate in readers who submit to their world of vision? Hence, it is necessary in a concluding step to critically look at our understanding of the power of scripture as the word of God. Many Christians have been taught that the words of scripture are divinely revealed and hence they may not be approached with a hermeneutics of suspicion. A hermeneutics of suspicion that places on all texts a label, caution, could be dangerous to your health and survival. (laughs) The understanding of the power and authority of scripture is consciously or not shaped by the notion of power and authority found in the book of Revelation. The introduction to Revelation establishes a chain of revelatory authority which resides with God, is communicated through Christ or the angelic interpreter to John and through him to the audience. Strictly speaking, the words of the book do not represent John's discourse but rather claim to be divine discourse. The real author of Revelation is not John but God, the vision Jesus and the Spirit. The one in human likeness and the spirit speak to the ecclesia and John merely transcribes their message. You all know the pictures with where the uh, angel dictates into the ear of the evangelist. The epilogue of Revelation reinforces the understanding. This understanding, John threatens anyone who would add something to the book with the terrible plagues that it forecasts. At the same time, he warns against subtracting anything. He seems to want to forestall the testing of his work since it was commonplace assumption in early Christianity that prophecy required the discernment and the testing of the spirits and the testing of the prophets. John's insistence on the divine authorship of Revelation has decisively influenced theological understandings of the power of scripture and of canonical authority. If one accepts his portrayal of the revelatory process, one comes to an understanding of scripture as the dictated word of God, rather than as the inspired rhetorical response of biblical writers to specific theoretical problems arising in particular socio-rhetorical locations. The early Christian insight that the spirit must be discerned and the words and lifestyle of the prophets must be tested by the community has been submerged in this understanding. Hence, it is too easily forgotten that readers of Christian Testament the Christian Testament are called to test the words of Scripture and, to have the, and that we have the task to engage an ethics of interpretation for adjudicating the political and religious powers of biblical texts. Insofar as the power of the word and the authority of Scripture as power over 
are understood as divinely sanctioned. Divine revelation has been understood in analogy to imperial power that is exercised by a few and demands submission and obedience from the many. Biblical interpretation, therefore, cannot but reinscribe the rhetoric of empire as divine rhetoric if it understands scripture as a dictated word of God. The result of such a literalist understanding of revelation is a widespread biblicist fundamentalism and a lack of critical theological ability and spiritual practice to adjudicate scriptural texts. In order to foster the ability of spiritual discernment, biblical preaching and theological education need to educate the people of God in a critical stance toward all human words, especially those that claim the unmediate power and authority of God. The scriptural language and metaphors we use shape our perception of the world in which we live. The uncritical, fundamentalist, or positivist reinscriptions of the rhetoric of empire as the word of God do not simply misunderstand or misconstrue scripture. Rather, they are correct because the Roman Empire is the context of early Christian rhetoric and historically constitutive of it. Nevertheless, inscribed in scripture is not only the rhetoric of empire's power over and its demand for submission, suffering, obedience, and control. We also still can find traces of an alternative rhetoric of power, which understands power as power, uh, power too as creative, liberating power for. Hence, all language of power inscribed in scripture must be carefully explored and critically assessed in terms of what it does to those who submit to its sacred power of imagination. What the Spirit says today to our own particular socio-political situations and our own rhetorical situation must be assessed in a theoretical practice of rhetorical analysis and an ideology critique that can trace God's power for justice and well-being both in the Bible and in today's political struggles against the domination of global empire. Because Christians understand the Bible as a revealed word of God, readers of biblical texts early on learn to develop strategies of textual valorization and validation rather than hermeneutical skills to critically interrogate and assess scriptural interpretations and texts along with their visions, values, and prescriptions. If the literary canonization of text in general places a work outside of any further need to establish its merits, the canonization of sacred scripture in particular brings even more sympathy and uncritical acceptance. Canonization compels readers to offer increasingly more ingenuous interpretation in order to establish the truth of the text itself or a single sense correct meaning of, of it, either as sacred scripture or as cultural classic. Christian churches which continue to insist on the authority of the Bible for Christian life and community face the theological problem of how such authority can be maintained in the face of critical biblical studies. 
These studies have underscored the Bible's pluriformity, historicity, and linguisticality, as well as proven its theological relativity and ideological function in the interest of relations of domination. A Christian dogmatic hermeneutics thus confronts a rhetorical situation that is determined by the theological problem of how to articulate revealed authority and authoritative truths in the face of critical biblical scholarship that intellectually rules out fundamentalist literalism and plenary inspiration. At least since the last centuries, feminists have intensified this crisis of biblical authority, insofar as uh, they have pointed out that the Bible has not only been uh, written by human hand, but uh, by the hand of elite men. It is not only the product of past imperial cultures, but also has been and still is used to instill the dehumanizing violence of such cultures as the word of God. If biblical norms and traditions are not only historically conditioned by empire, but also ideologically determined, then one must ask what kind of authority does the Bible have for believing communities today? Since it is not only a historically and theologically limited book, but also one that inculcates the ethos and violence of empire. In order to avoid such internalizations of the ethos of empire, we need to adopt an understanding of scripture that will allow us to deal critically with the scriptural language of empire rather than compel us to repeat and reinscribe it. Historically, the language of democracy has provided an alternative discourse to imperialism and domination. Although democracy has different shades of meaning that are not always liberating, democracy through the times has been and still is the discourse that sets the terms for critique of imperial power and institutional change. The very name for church is Ecclesia, that is, the democratic assembly of full citizens. Radical democracy, which I have called the Ecclesia of Women, offers a language and space for the imagination to develop a public religious discourse wherein justice, participation, difference, freedom, equality, and solidarity set the ethical conditions. The challenge then today seems to me to develop, is to develop modes of interpretation that cannot only recognize imperial biblical language, but also are able to trace languages and imaginations of radical democratic equality in scripture that are different from those of empire. Since Christian fundamentalism draws on the language of empire inscribed in Christian scriptures, Christian liberationist readings need to reconstruct elements of a radical democratic egalitarian vision that is also inscribed in Christian scriptures. We need to rethink the authority of scripture, not as power over, that demands obedience, but as power to, as enabling decision-making power, as discernment of the spirit. The question of the authority of scripture is not just an inner Christian problem, but it is a challenge to all those who seek to change the cultural political ethos of empire and its internalizations. 
this question becomes more and more pressing at a time when in the name of God and the Bible, anti-democratic tendencies are on the rise. In response to this question, several hermeneutical approaches have been developed. The approach which I have found most helpful utilizes a classic theological teaching which recognizes that the Bible, I quote, contains revelation, namely in the form of a written record, but that not all of Scripture is revelation. I've quoted Vatican II now. In line with Augustine and Thomas of Aquinas, this approach articulates a criterion that limits revealed truths to matters pertaining to salvation or well-being. The theological criterion for the sake of our salvation, of our well-being, allows us to adjudicate everything said in Scripture as to whether it fosters well-being. It compels us to reject the authority of those biblical texts that are inscriptions of empire and violence. As theological subjects, we have to insist on our spiritual authority to assess both the oppressive as well as the liberating imagination of particular biblical texts in concrete situations. We need to do so because of the imperial functions of authoritative scriptural claims that demand unquestioned obedience and acceptance. Yet biblical authority understood as power too is not something that requires subordination and obedience. Rather, it understands scripture as a resource of creativity, courage, and solidarity. The creative power of scripture is something ongoing that can be articulated only in and through the rejection of the violent power and ethos of empire. The truth of sacred scripture is not something given once and for all. The words of scripture are not engraved tablets of stone. Rather, they are nourishing bread of divine wisdom, which empowers us to struggle against the violence and exploitation of empire in our daily lives. I thank you. We have sometimes for questions, reflections, observations, whatever the spirit moves you. Yes, please. I would like to ask about the traces of equality of, of the power two in the Bible. Where, where, where would we begin to look for these traces of, of uh, liberal power two in the Bible? What books, what sections would you suggest? Uh, what I had to cut out is um, if you look at, at traces, either as power over, as power, but especially of power two, you have to um, look carefully, not just in terms of what the text says, but also what, how the te- text works in certain situations. Uh, for instance, you, uh, you have these beautiful um, texts on love in, in the Bible, justice. Uh, but, uh, for instance, if you tell um, 
woman who comes to you uh, for counseling uh, who is battered. And you tell her that the main commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Then this text, which is, um, in my opinion, a, not an imperial text, but a, uh, a uh, liberating text, this text can function as inculcating uh, uh, dependency and uh, staying within a violent uh, situation. So, so it's uh, you see little. Uh, it's it's much easier. Or let me say it not this way. Um, text uh, imperial text or power over text also can function in such a fashion. Uh, I quoted uh, text of subordination, but uh, text of sub- subordination in terms of biblical text told to people in uh, impossible situations may help them survive. So um, what I'm trying to say is that um, texts never work independently of context. And uh, we are too much used just to look at texts and not to use at what texts do in particular situations. Um, so it's not enough just to look at text and identify text, but you also have always to ask what kind of situations is this text used, is this text preached, is the authority for this text claimed. So it's more important to, uh, to change people's understanding of the authority of Scripture than uh, just to identify individual texts. Yeah. Uh, some have said that Martin Luther had a canon within the canon mm-hmm. because he so focused on justification, forgiveness, and so on, especially in the book of Romans and uh, Galatians, and was not as fond of James with its heavy emphasis on works. And I wonder if um, a canon within a canon might describe what you were advocating. Uh, if so, uh, what would your canon within a canon be? <laughs> okay, you caught me. <laughs> I said there are different hermeneutical approaches and solutions to these questions, remember? Before I quoted Vatican II. And I opted not for the Lutheran canon within the canon uh, decision, but I, what I opted for was um, the... Um, and the, and the council fathers, I'm sure, did not have in mind what I <laughs> was telling you. <laughs> but it is in the council documents. That means uh, the criterion does not need to be found in Scripture. If everything that is, uh, uh, not everything in Scripture is revelation, but everything that is revealed for the sake of our salvation. Sake of our salvation, or sake of women's salvation, means it is um, our uh, decision for what uh, well-being would mean today, what is jeopardizing well-being or not. So it's, not, uh, it's an ethical criterion. It's not something that you have to find in Scripture because you can uh, articulate as many canons within the canons or um, uh, if you have canon within the canon or you can uh, use... Um, Parallels. I mean, principle here and principle in the canon, and, and uh, correlates them. Um, 
you always will will be able be um, not be able to say this is the tr- the the truth the canon because uh, some other scholar will come or some other reader will come and say oh Paul uh, justification by faith really didn't work out that well for women or uh, it was really authoritative kind of understanding and didn't mean that so um, so I, what I what I really uh, proposed here is a criterion that is derived in uh, terms of contemporary ethical political judgment and values. It's it's an ethical political criterion rather than something given in scripture. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.